So, hey, Steve. So, um, yeah, tell the audience a little bit about what you do. Happy to do so, Fong. It's great to be with you today and with uh, our audience. Aloha, I like to say, from paradise. I live in Honolulu, Hawaii, and I am the chief experience officer, um, aka chief executive officer, but like um, we really want to emphasize the experience people have. And so we kind of changed that a little bit, but chief experience officer of a company called PlayLab. And PlayLab is um, 10 years old with me, but it was a different name until I brought some partners on. We rebranded it. And our focus today is turning workplaces into metaphoric playgrounds, not literal playgrounds, but like, so, um, and we do that to support mental health in the workplace. And the theory is this, if you think about a playground for little kids, it's generally one of the safest places they go, all things being equal, before they're old enough to get all these ideas about what's right or wrong, you don't have to talk to them about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Everybody belongs, right? You don't have to ask them to show up on time. They get to the playground early, they stay late, right? They don't, so the premise, and they, and they go hard while they're on the playground. So the premise is this, that if work were designed in a way that leaned into people's playful personalities, they'd get way more productivity, way more psychological safety. And so PlayLab is on a mission through several different projects we're working on right now to get the workplace mentally healthy. That's it in a nutshell. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, when I think of like play, um, I think of the first thing that comes to mind is like children, right? Like mm -hmm. kind of like what you're describing, playground. Yep. Um, so when you bring this to like business CEOs and executives, they're like 50, 60 years old. Yeah. Do, do Are they a little bit taken back? Do they, you know, do some of you like, or some of them kind of not take you seriously because you're like, oh, play, you know? So like, what's your experience with that? That's a great question. And I'm chuckling because just yesterday um, I had a prospecting meeting with a company and the two executives, the CEO and the president were who I spoke with. The president's in his forties. The CEO is in his seventies. The um, president just like, he got it. It made sense. The CEO was like, Something about this feels good, but it also feels so counterintuitive because they're so conditioned to think that play is the opposite of work to start with. Mm -hmm. And then secondarily, if you think about it, I mean, there may be other narratives, but I think the general three narratives of um, play are what kids do to learn to grow up, what we do on the weekends, like as a reward, right? And what the ultra wealthy get to do all the time, right? Like that's what people would define play as. And, and as adults, it's often in our schedule, the first thing to go, right? Because there's so many other things to be done. And so to your point, are we met with resistance? Not as much as you might think, because we have a very specific target demographic. So we're not going after those 50, 60, 70 year old leaders of certain types of companies. We're going after companies where people are generally more predisposed to know that business in the future needs to look different than it did in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
But notwithstanding, we wrote an entire white paper on it. We've got two or three collateral pieces to kind of just give them real science and say, you know, if you really think about it, play is not the opposite of work, which is mm -hmm. kind of what we've been conditioned to think. Um, have you ever heard the expression, um, find a job you love and you'll never work another day in your life? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what does that really mean, right? And, and, and uh, in, in the simplest sense, Fong, it's people find their state of happiness in productivity. And playfulness by its nature is very energized, right? When, when you think about playing, kids aren't passed out sleeping on the park bench. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're running, they're exu exuding confidence, they're um, spilling out a lot of energy, and, and it seems like it's never-ending sometimes. And the premise is this, that if we designed a workplace where people's jobs were more complementary to their personality styles as it related to play, it's far more likely to be far more productive. Perfect example, some people are storytellers. Like they say, mm -hmm. gather around and they're good communicators. Well, you probably wouldn't wanna put a storyteller in a job where he's in front of a computer like this all day. He would not be happy. He or she would mm -hmm. be disengaged, right? Just like um, another play personality is collector, right? Somebody who amasses stuff. Well, if you were an accountant, you're probably a collector. So you don't want to put them out on the front line trying to sell things. And But we've not really ever thought of it this way before. So I like to tell people we, we kind of hammer home three things. Let's redefine play, right? Give it a new idea. Then we can reimagine work. Mm -hmm. And once we reimagine work, we can actually redesign the human experience at work. What is it like 70, 80% of people who go to work today don't like their job? I mean, it, it's constantly in that number. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So does that kind of answer your question a little tangential? But yeah, no, that definitely does. Um, I could definitely just kind of see how some people would be more resistant than others. And maybe it has to do with generation, um, you know, and, and pass a certain age. 100% agree with you. And the actual program we're doing now is designed for like a control group in a company. So if we went to a company, excuse me, with say a thousand people, we'd only have seven people go through this first project. It's an experiment. And so if you think about experiments in general, when do we pay the most attention? when we're trying something new that we came up with that we think maybe this is better. It could be, I'm gonna drive this way to work and save more time. I'm gonna reorganize how I do my bills, save a little cash, change my workout, get different things. We pay attention to that. So by experimenting with play, we get people actually observing what's going on. And probably some of the biggest things that affect most workers based on surveys I've seen, lack of productivity because of lack of focus. And the lack of focus sometimes has to do with work, but here's the truth. The Surgeon, uh, Surgeon General in October last year said that reported, uh, it's a great report, I'll give you the link if you wanna put it into the uh, podcast notes later, but um, 
74% of all Americans surveyed, it was a large survey done in 2021, reported that they have the early onset or uh, like a, um, a medical marker to mental health issues. So we think of mental health issues as like real serious stuff, right? Um, depression, suicidal thoughts, bipolar, you know, anger management. But really, it starts with I'm agitated. I don't sleep well. I'm lethargic at work. I can't focus. I have stress or hypertension. And what happens is, is we don't know how to manage those things. And because we don't know how to manage those things, they just stack up in the body. So 76% said they've got those things going on. But listen to this, Fong. 84%, according to the report, are actually getting uh, or reporting, I guess is a better way to say it, that the cause of those early signs and symptoms, if you want to call them that, is the workplace. Hmm. So by shifting the energy of the workplace and being more cognizant or aware, maybe there's an opportunity to change some of that. But until we change it, there's no way people are coming to work focused because they're mm -hmm. stressed. And all stress is, is my focus on something I can't resolve. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And that's one thing I've been just kind of concerned about with society is, you know, you hear all these stats, right? Like, for example, um, one of the leading causes of death now in the U.S. is fentanyl overdoses, right? I'm sure you right. heard of that. It's insane. Yeah. There's alcoholism, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's depression, mental health, suicides. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you child, child, um, or I guess adolescent teens and children, 40% mm -hmm. increase in depression. Mm -hmm. A and B, this was just saddening to me. Um, no matter what, where a person stands on the Second Amendment, the truth is the truth. And um, this year, they said 47 children, and I think it was 327 teens lost their life due to a gun. And now in the U.S., the number one killer of teens and children, it's not accidents, it's not disease, it's guns. Mm -hmm. So we put the statistics you just said and these other ones, and, you know, it's just this big bowl of soup of negativity. Mm -hmm. And most people just don't know how to approach those things. Mm -hmm. And resolve them or manage them until they resolve and that creates nervousness, anxiety, stress. And uh, yeah. And if you think about it, when's the last time you went into a workplace and they equipped you with tools to fix that? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so talking about those teens, you know, a lot of those teens aren't working, right? So like that can't be the cause of their pain. So what do you think is causing such pain in young kids and let's say for people that aren't working, because there's a lot of people that aren't working, you know, so sure. what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, no one's ever asked me that. However, there's not science behind what I'm going to say, but it's just, um, I think it's reasonable to conclude that this is maybe what's behind it. Um, a couple things. The Gen Z, right, mm -hmm. coming behind the millennials has always been fighting to be as relevant as the millennials, because, you know, since the baby boomers, the millennials are it, right? Mm -hmm. And frankly, they should be it. They're the largest buying power in the world because it's the largest segment of population. 
but you've got that little brother competition thing going on. Mm. Anytime you're living in that shadow, it creates angst, right? But I think the big one that we can't even start to quantify is for two and a half years, that subset of society had zero to minimal socialization, which is a major part of their diet of well-being, mm. right? You know, they may not like going to school, right? In the sense of they, some kids don't like to study, but everybody likes to go to school to hang out with their friends, generally speaking. So mm -hmm. I would say um, clearly those two things. And one thing that we can't underestimate, um, and this was told to me by a school teacher or actually an administrator uh, about two weeks ago, and I'd never thought of it this way. If you take the children who are anywhere between three to five or six years old during the pandemic, their brains undeniably are going to form differently mm. than anyone else's has formed. Because remember, I think it's year zero to seven or so is the brain is in theta wave state, right? It's mm. collecting, it, the mass is actually growing. And, um, and really, that group of people was completely contained. And even if they weren't, parents were containing them because they were terrified. So right. who knows what that's going to bring, right? That's a whole new thing because we don't know how their brains didn't develop and how they will or won't as a result of that. Mm. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, my wife is a high school teacher okay. and she, she noticed a big difference during the pandemic the kids, mm -hmm. the upcoming kids that were becoming freshmen, their socialization skills were off, mm -hmm. you know, compared to, you know, their, the um, sophomores, juniors, and seniors when they were freshmen. Sure. And so, yeah, like what, I wonder, you know, years now, 10 years, 20 years, like what that's going to uh, cause, you know, yeah. like the, that two years of being locked in with not much socialization with their peers. Well, if you add to that, Let's step to the um, young adults. Um, mm -hmm. I'm guessing you're in your 20s or early 30s. So take the 20 to 35-year-olds, right? This mm -hmm. is the group of people that um, prolifically, not that other age groups aren't in the dating scene, right? But this is the, the group of people who are looking for potentially a mate, want to create a family. And I heard a fascinating um, take on the the scary nature of the future of men. And mm. it was based on this. They said, if you go back to World War II, the baby boomers, right? Mm -hmm. All those um, veterans came home celebrating, right? It's the only war um, that I know of in modern history where they took care of the veteran properly. They went home and they got back in the community and they were, they were like responsible, responsible men, right? Mm -hmm. And the way they communicated was face-to-face. -face. Now, fast forward to the last five, six years, even before the pandemic, you know, we had this swipe right, swipe left mm -hmm. stuff, right? And, um, and literally, um, between that and the pandemic, today, a man's socialization skills to even approach women is very subpar mm. and because we live in such a visually prompted age, and it's it's wildly unfortunate that um, the, I, I don't know where the, like, I can't say, you know how they said, the, you know, where did COVID start, right? Like, mm -hmm. well, 
I, I don't know where what I'm about to say started, but all you have to do is go on any social media platform. Mm. Don't have to look too long. And all of a sudden you see this trend a little with men, but a lot with women. My body has to look perfect. I have to have this hourglass figure and I have to wear as little clothes as possible and then ask for my man. I'm single. I'm divorced. Who mm. wants to? And these um, circumstances or elements in society today are real deterrents to authentic communication, authentic relationship. And um, most people go into a relationship today with such a substandard toolbox for how to even relate. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, many relationships are destined for more dysfunction, which just piles on the whole mess. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if I can bring that back to why Play Labs in the business arena, we think our premise could be used in education, in churches, associations, um, rehabilitation. But our feeling was let's go to work first, the workplace, because it's where people spend more of their time. Uh, waking mm-hmm. hours and anywhere else. And it's where we can reach the most people at once. And, and our hope is that over time, next five, 10 years, we'll have given hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, new tools to approach all these really challenging things that are coming in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense how a lot of people or a lot of people spend most of their time at work. And mm-hmm. so why not focus on the place where they're going to be at. Yeah. So that makes a, um, makes a lot of sense. So um, that being said, like, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, people were working from home. So, you know, I started working from home, um, many other people, and then like, I'm working from home. Yeah. You're working from home and you start to hear like people saying, oh yeah, if you work from home, it's, it might even be better to work from home. You're, you might be more productive um, than working in an office. And then now, like fast forward two to three years later, like you start to see companies like Tesla, like Disney, JP Morgan, they're like, all right, everybody, it's time to come back to the office. And so I'm pretty sure they have some sort of data and they're testing, okay, like are people actually more productive at home? Well, if that's the case, they would continue to let their you know employees work from home. Now they're calling them to go back into the office. So like, have you seen any studies? Like, what are your thoughts on that? You know, like, I know it's kind of like a touchy subject because a lot of people want to work from home, but these companies, they're like, hey, it's actually more productive to work in the office. Well, let me add one, um, uh, one more factoid to that, and then I'll respond. Mm-hmm. Are you aware that in England about, I think it was either a hundred companies or a thousand companies were part of a experiment the entire last year, a four-day work week. Are you aware of that? I heard um, about the four-day work week, but not that specific study, yeah. Um, I heard on the news two days ago, I haven't had a chance to actually go online and get my own site sourcing, but every major area that you would want to see improvement was up because of a four-day work week. So if you Mm -hmm. had that four-day work week, to the fact that people want to work at home, right, more, and yet companies want to bring you back. And um, like one of the companies we're talking to, they're based out of Boston. And even before the pandemic, 75% of their employees were um, remote. And 
I said, well, that's interesting. How did that come to be? And they said, it just made sense for us from an overhead perspective and people liked it. And I said, what's your biggest challenge? And their biggest challenge is creating any um, sense of culture because people aren't in the office much. So I've got a couple of thoughts around this. There's no doubt that um, business leaders, particularly where they have um, high levels of commercial leases, are going to push hard to get their people to come back because they don't want to default and breach on these leases, right? Um, and that's why the next two, three years, there's a lot of uncertainty even about kind of the commercial real estate market because no one knows where that's going to be. Now, the other side is when you take that report from England and you take the fact that while I've not seen any reports, the general feeling I've got based on one thing is that working from home didn't, like if companies went under or underperformed during the pandemic, it wasn't because they worked from home. And here's why I um, theorize that. Because up until whatever, a few months ago where there was a downturn in the stock market, even during the pandemic, there was an adjustment right at the beginning, right? Everybody needed a bunch of money, but the companies were still making record profits. So, you know, it's a bit of a quandary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. if, if I had my way, um, I love people. I'd like to walk into an office and see my five partners every day. Mm -hmm. One lives in New York, one lives in North Carolina, one lives in San Diego, San Francisco, and LA. And you mm. think about that. And I met all of them during the pandemic. And four of the six um, were virtual connections. I was mm. telling, I was uh, at a event last night, in, um, a virtual event in Canada um, for International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. I was telling them last night that, like, I don't know what their situation is, but mine is I've made some of the really coolest friends, deepest connections this way than I ever did before. So you got all that out there. And if businesses don't take all that into account, like if they just say, come back to work, I honestly think they're going to lose people. Mm. Mm -hmm. you're, you're familiar with quiet quitting, right? Oh, yeah. The go, uh, ghost quitting. People call it ghost yeah. quitting. So, like, see ya. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. why, why, why are people like ghost quitting? You know, like to me, what comes to mind when someone wants to ghost quit is because they might be afraid of confrontation, you know, mm -hmm. maybe like people's social skills, they're afraid to, you know, tell people the truth or afraid to have hard yeah. conversations with people nowadays. So, um, that's, that's first thing that comes to mind when I think of ghost quitting, but, but, or being passive, you know, aggressive. So what, I mean, why do you think people are ghost quitting and not going to their manager and saying, hey, I quit? Yeah, um, I think your, your first assessment is probably a, a reasonable one. Several other conjectures would be the following. You're a millennial, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard your generation be described as entitled? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it's an unfortunate mischaracterization personally. However, if there's some of that energy, people are like, hey, I came to work and millennials look for a different set of um, requirements to be in a workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
not about a 401k. It's not about a company car. You know, it's like they rather have a four day work week and get like tickets to Coachella on the weekend <laughs> award instead of matching in a 401k, right? Right. But even more than that, and I think you know this as well, your generation is a deeply feeling generation or empathetic, right? Like, and I think that's going to be really useful in the not too distant future. But the, the point in bringing that up is there, there might be a little bit of this, hey, I got nothing from them. So no need to give anything to them. See mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Right. And you are right. Some people just don't like confrontation. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, if the millennials are leaving, I think they're leaving because they like to even have a conversation mm -hmm. is a waste of their precious time because right. they, nothing they can say can fix it. So, you know, on that's they go. The yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, I think personally that both people are at fault. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think that, you know, the person that's quitting, that's ghost quitting is at fault because, you know, like you got to have conversations that might make you feel uncomfortable. Right. It's, mm -hmm. and it's also kind of like professional to let people know if you're going to be leaving. Yeah. And so that's, well, no that's doubt. just professional, you know, and then as far as the companies go, like, why didn't you create such a great culture where people feel safe to go to you and tell, you know, for them to tell you that they're quitting. Right. And so I, I think the company should take some responsibility too. And, but frankly, both parties are, you know, need to step it up. <laughs> well, you know, it's just a general principle of life that it's good to communicate, right? Mm -hmm. like, like that's a useful thing. And um, as you were saying all that, I couldn't help but think, that this is the area that one of the areas that Play Lab is focused on, answering the question, how do you really create psychological safety in the workplace? Because to your point, for those who don't want confrontation, there's a fear factor. I don't want to feel bad. It doesn't, and they're going to discount what I'm going to say. Like there's, there's all, a whole list of why they're not doing it. <laughs> and, and while, um, both parties are um, are contributors to the problem. I would say the company has a greater responsibility mm. in the future more than ever to pay attention to do we have a culture by design and mm. do we have things in place to measure stickiness, right? Like mm. retention, uh, right. I like the word sticky. Um, and, and more importantly, if I'm thinking something, is the manager asking the question, do I really know how my direct reports are doing, feeling mm -hmm. about their job, right? You know, and the problem with that is 50% of all managers around the world have never had formalized training. Hmm. And now you're big companies for sure, but mm -hmm. if you offset that, by all the mom and pa businesses or, you know, um, small franchises, it's next man up, right? right? Like when someone leaves, hey, that guy does a real good job and we need him now, right? And all of a sudden they're an assistant manager, right? Mm -hmm. But like, if you think of things like, I remember when um, 
you know, we now watch all our movies streaming, right? But I remember when you used to go to a video store to get your movies. And then for a while, you'd have DVDs and, and then those phased out, Blockbuster being the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm, I'm just recollecting a story of a friend's son who became an assistant manager and um, was all excited. And so I just asked him, this is, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I said, well, that's cool. Like, what did they teach you? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I already knew how to use the register. They told, <laughs> how to, they told me how to open and close the store. They told me um, to be nice to the people who are on my shift. And, and these are um, very elementary things, right? right? Like, like mm -hmm. what about being able to ask your employee, how are you? And listening with an empathetic ear to hear, wow, he gave me the brush off. So maybe something's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. He opened up, but then said, that's as far, like most people don't know how to do that. And mm -hmm. large part, because very few people are listening today. So many right. people are talking and what are they talking about? In large part in this country, the divisive nature of, um, of social issues, of political perspectives, of, um, economic classes, right? Like mm -hmm. the poor are fighting for more, the rich are saying, I don't even know, that's, that's another question, right? Like when a school teacher pays more taxes than a, a billionaire, I don't get it. But nonetheless, like they're fighting for their, I don't wanna give you any more of my money, right? And the young mm -hmm. guy, the poor guy says, I don't have any money. And everybody's so busy talking and looking to be right. It's very difficult for people to listen in a way that really seeks to understand. Um, if I had a, a business today, well, I do, but if I had a business where I had managers, right? Like mm -hmm. um, I have five partners and we all perform at a very high level. But if I had a bunch of managers, the first thing I would teach them is how to listen. Because mm -hmm. we're doing so many things. It's like, yeah, Fong, I got it. And then 10 minutes later, I'm like, what did Fong ask me? Mm -hmm. We asked for two tomatoes at the store and, and I come back and you say it's avocados, you know, I don't right. know. but, but this is a challenge for sure. Yeah, definitely. While you're talking, like it uh, kind of reminded me of um, back when I was in college, I was doing, um, I was a sales leader. I had a sales team and one of the people that I um, was training kind of mentioned a few things. And in my heart, you know, I could tell that something was off, mm -hmm. right? And so that night, um, I ended up getting a dream that he quit, you know, from, you know, quit, quit his job. And the next day, he quit his job. <laughs> and so it came from listening, but I didn't have, I guess, the courage at that time to have a conversation with him about it to just kind of see what was really going on. I kind of brushed it off, right? Yeah. And so, and so I didn't really, um, I didn't really listen to my gut, you know, I just, I just, uh, neglected it and, and ended up losing him. But, um, I think listening is so huge, you know, like seeking to understand before being understood. And I feel yeah. like a lot of leaders are missing that. I, um, keep well, referring back to the book, seven habits of highly effective people, you know, and that chapter talks about empathetic listening and seeking to understand. And so I think that's a huge, huge, important skill, not just in the workplace now, but in general society you know like we're there's yeah. polarizing sides that just talk at each other and won't listen and so i think i think that's uh i think that's crucial 
Well, I might add one one thought there that's so important. Like today, it's one thing to teach people how to listen. It's another thing to even modify the pace of my life to ensure I have time and space to listen, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I could be taught how to listen, but so many people today are living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, they're filling their lives with all sorts of stuff or, 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 or life is just busy, right? To many families today are double income, right? And mm -hmm. kids because they can't afford to live on one income like 40, 50 years ago. And um, I was actually thinking about this. I, I'm, I'm coaching someone right now. They live in Louisiana, husband, wife, four kids. And um, their business has, I've worked with them for, on and off for seven years. And their business is really at this uh, mushroom point. It has a great opportunity. And yet when we re-engaged to do some more work, she said, I just can't afford to take any more detours. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, if I try this and it doesn't work, I lose time, I lose money, I have to readjust an entire schedule. Like, and when I say try this, I mean strategies that may impact everything from, well, our kids have karate, little league, and you know, Cub Scouts or whatever, right? And they want to honor all those things. And then there's something called, hey, we fell in love long before we had kids, right? There's the there's the working on the marriage. There are so many things that press on people and then like never before, and the pandemic hurt us even more with this, um, there's all sorts of things that we now have appetites for, like binge watching Netflix or Amazon, because that's what we did during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. The next thing you know, you took eight or 10 hours of real useful time and and you lost it, right? Because mm -hmm. instead of watching your new show once a week for eight weeks, you're just like, I got to see it all, right? And, and right. these types of habits crowd our time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's, uh, you know, people, um, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, like we complain that we don't have enough time for something, but once you audit everything you're spending your time on, yeah, you might be spending an hour a day watching YouTube you know, or two hours a day watching YouTube or 30 minutes in the restroom on your phone, sitting on the toilet, right? Like once you audit, you'll find extra time. And it's a matter of a perspective change. Like, okay, well, where can I cut down um, areas where I'm spending a lot of time, but it's not giving me a good ROI. Well, you'll, you'll appreciate this because of um, your primary business working in social media. Um, when I first came to the main or went to the mainland I forget mm -hmm. I'm back here in Hawaii <laughs> when I went to the mainland which of course was the same time frame when I met you and the folks at Happy Neighborhood Project um, I got some um, some great counsel about um, social media and, and this is, what, this it is was. what it was they said Steve for eight years or maybe seven at that point I had been coaching and kind of practicing the things that now we've developed the last three four years but I was never a big social media guy, right? Mm -hmm. I just didn't like it. So um, if you wanted a footprint of my work, it didn't exist, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it wasn't there. And one of the things he said is like, people will look at your social media today as much as they'll look at your website or they'll Google you to really see if you're straight up with your value proposition, particularly in an industry like mine, where mm -hmm. it's totally different 
So for a year and a half, I still remember this. I was like, what happened to me? Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, I was on social media 15 to 18 hours a week. Wow. But, but it was on purpose mm-hmm. because I was creating strategic connections. Mm-hmm. I was commenting on other people's posts and saying, mm-hmm. that's a great way to look at it. Have you thought about play? You know, like mm-hmm. in certain things, I was beginning to um, paint a picture of the last eight years, but over the last 18 months. And, and I thought to myself, wow, like it was necessary. Mm-hmm. But there are people who do that just to scroll. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. In the book, Stealing Fire, Jane, great read, by the way, Jamie Kotler, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler um, co-wrote the book. And one of the things they talked about is that in this modern day, you know, um, it's arguable that social media is worse than a line of cocaine. (laughs) Meaning, and of course, that's not to in any way, you Mm -hmm. know, um, say that there aren't bad things about cocaine, but their point and when they wrote was, look, people aren't happy. So they're vicariously living through the lives of these other people who post, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, um, and now I'm back on social media, strategically promoting things. We'll promote this. Um, however, I don't miss all that time. But when I take right. a few minutes, it's scary, bro. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't understand why, why a woman would say, uh, I, I'm seeing them in TikTok. I'm 41. I like dad bods instead of muscle bods. I like old guys instead of young. My husband cheated on me, but I'm a good girl. And I'm like, this is not, there's something wrong with this, right? Mm -hmm. And then simultaneous to that, I observe some people and I'm like, oh my God. And I'm thinking of one person in particular. She has a podcast and I attempted to get on it and it just didn't work. It was a couple of years back. She's from um, the Middle East, I think Afghanistan. And every time I look, she's somewhere different in the world. Mm. And, um, and I think she's based out of LA. She's uh, studying a degree, or at least that's what I saw. But I asked myself, how does a person have the, the freedom to travel to all these places? And, you know, sometimes she had some modeling pictures, and, but she had all this really cool stuff about brain science. And I'm like, Hmm. How does a 24 year old do that? Right. Hmm. And it happens. Some people, maybe you're born into it. Some people are gifted to have relationships that work. But here's what happens everybody else says, Wow, I wish my life was that good. Mm-hmm. They, right. and they, they, they give their power away to create their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's def- definitely a fine balance. You know, mm-hmm. like, for me, like I've been, uh, I'm really into, you know, health, wellness, and also, you know, bodybuilding. So I've been doing it for um, close to 10 years now. And so what I've learned over the years is if I compare myself to other people, I'm like, oh man, I wish I could be like them. Then you start to feel demotivated, right? And and almost not want to do anything. You vicariously live to them through them, right? Yeah. But if if I can admire them and say, wow, I want to strive like that. But then I compare myself to myself and my progress, like where was I yesterday and how can I improve? Then that's a way better way to live, you know, especially on social media, because it's very easy to compare yourself to others. But if you just focus on yourself and figure out how you can personally get better, then Mm -hmm. you'll be a lot more happier that way. 
Yeah, social media is an interesting phenomenon. And, um, you know, I, I have um, this gut feeling, not based on anything, but that it's going to go through some significant evolutions. And I'm not sure if they'll be good or bad, right? Like you've mm -hmm. got the United States government that has now banned TikTok on all federal devices. And some people are saying, let's just ban it all together. And I don't, I could care less one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's just fascinating. Like unrelated to the, the ones that I think are, are big, and you probably know this better than I, I, I hear there's this Twitch thing and the signal thing and this other blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. And I'm like, holy smokes. And then, you know, I thought YouTube was the streaming platform and it is, but now there's other ones and um, it's this vacuum and it mm -hmm. just sucks people um, away from, I think consciousness is the right thing, right? Like, and by consciousness, I mean active decision-making because the brain just gets wired into these short form messages and if I'm a, let's say I'm a, um, a self-help junkie, I can scroll for hours and get self-help, but never do anything. Right. Let's say I'm aspiring to be a model. I can see lots of pictures. Like there's, there's something for, there's a flavor for everyone. And I'm just not sure that any of the flavors are really that useful um, in great quantities. And yet there's really no regulation on it, mm -hmm. except self-regulation. Yeah, you're totally right. I see I see social media as it's not going to go anywhere, in my opinion, for the next 10 to 20 years, but I think it will be eventually regulated because, you know, I, um, I heard I heard it from someone and they said that he met with a lot of the engineers that create these social media platforms and they don't let their kids on it or mm -hmm. they regulate it. And the reason why they do that is because they know what they created. They're creating yeah. virtual slot machines. Mm -hmm. where you get on and the key is to keep you on for as long as possible, right? To get yeah. you scrolling to, to you know, get more ad revenue. And so what I think will eventually happen is there might be some sort of time limit on social media platforms. Where, social, where you're automatically logged out. Yeah, automatically logged out. Um, or uh, what could happen is social media starts to evolve to another form of media. Like just like, like how the um, newspaper then went to transition to the radio, transition sure. to the TV, transi transition to social media. There might be a new VR or AR sort of social media that people are tuned into at that point. Well, let me tell you the, the couple of things um, that I'm very hopeful about. Um, you know, some people think uh, Bitcoin was a fad and it came mm -hmm. and it went. Um, and that might be the experience of people in the US a lot. But throughout the uh, remainder of the world, the, the premise of blockchain technology mm -hmm. is gaining momentum and not just for currency, for information sharing, for data protection, for transparency and transaction. Mm -hmm. um, there's a company called, or I guess it's a foundation, but they have a company as well. Are you familiar with a crypto called Near, like Near and Far? It's Near and mm -hmm. So. Um, near cryptocurrency um, has a premise. And the premise is if blockchain is about transparency and transaction, what if everything we did was transparent? Because the biggest reason today 
well, not the biggest, but certainly a major contributor to all the uh, divisiveness in the world is lack of trust. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so their premise was there could be a lot of ways to use these technologies to do that. Then on top of that, you have NFTs, which clearly um, got abused a little bit early and people kind of pumped them up, but they're expressions of art free from typical currency, which um, I had a friend say to me, you know, we're born into this world and no one charges us to be born, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you got to pay a doctor's fee, but it's not like, yep, another kid, $10,000, mm-hmm. you know, to inhabit the earth. But why is it so expensive to live, right? And mm. And um, I think blockchain and somehow this thing called um, the meta mm-hmm. provides an, like, an opportunity to take what we saw in augmented and virtual reality and support the brain being able to change easier. Because mm-hmm. what we know about the brain is um, there are no major studies that say, like in the last hundred years, the brain has evolved a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like for those who think we're e- evolved versus created. And, and again, I have no opinion on that either. But the, the point is this, that while the brain has not evolved a lot, the human use of consciousness, information, imagination, innovation, and technology is spitting things out light years faster than it was 100 years ago. And there is this sense that, now, of course, all these things could be used for bad too, right? But that these things, when converging together, may be the first tool to really help support ease and human transformation. What I mean by that is this. I grew up poor. Paid for, food, uh, paid for food with food stamps, lived in a government project, always just got by. You know what happened, Afong, in my 30s when I became a millionaire? I didn't squander it, right? I didn't buy mm-hmm. cars and you know expensive stuff, but I managed to lose it in large part because of the mortgage meltdown. But I, like I had this idea subconsciously that, well, maybe I don't deserve it because I've always mm-hmm. got by, right? And then I, uh, and I reached million dollar status, seven figures and above. And then I did that again in my forties and I lost that. Mm. And it didn't occur to me long until I did some deep work with a coach I pay for was that I was going to keep doing that because that's all my brain saw. Mm. So no matter how much I wanted freedom and ease, I'd always just gone from situation to situation and always just survive. Mm -hmm. The premise of virtual reality and augmented reality um, enhances the synapses in the brain and how they connect and how they rewire. And it's too early to know what those things could mean. But um, this is the one thing I have great hope in. Mm -hmm. that, That like, in spite of all the things we've talked about today that have more questions than answers currently, I have met more people who are curious, capable, and I didn't mean to use C's, but committed (laughs) to the idea of, I want to do something to help make a difference. I mean, think Mm -hmm. about what the folks at Happy Neighborhood Project do, right? Like, that's huge. It's Mm -hmm. different. It doesn't solve all the problems, but boy, it's a big contribution Mm -hmm. to something other than what was. 
And even though we don't hear about those kinds of things on the news, um, I'm talking to people all around the world who are doing some really cool stuff. And, um, and that should give us hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's so, I mean, the technology is going to just really supercharge in the next decade. I mean, you hear things like, you heard a Neuralink? Yes, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's like a brain implant where, okay. um, yeah, so they, they implant it to your brain. And right now what it does is it, it helps with things like, you know, people that are paralyzed because, um, you know, the brain is not, you know, connecting to all the different parts of their body. And so it gives them feeling and being able to move. And then um, eventually it might solve Alzheimer's because with Alzheimer's, you, uh, you lose memory, right? Mm -hmm. And so this brain implant, think of it like a Google Drive where you can put memories back and at any time you can replay it through your brain. Fascinating. Yeah, and then eventually people won't need to communicate with each other because they'll communicate through the brain. It's like a cell phone in your brain, right? Yeah. It calls to your brain. And so, um, and so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like scary, but at the same time, it's like inspirational at the same time. And they uh, actually did trials um, and they tested it on monkeys. And so you see this monkey playing a ping pong game with its brain. It's that crazy. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm not Elon sure. Musk is behind it. <laughs> I'm not sure when all these crazy things will appear, but I, I'm sure of this. Like, um, I've been working real hard to get in better shape and just to be, and not that I was terribly out of shape, but I gained some weight during the pandemic and, and just to be the best version of me. Because, um, you know, I told someone once, I want to live to 150. And they're like, why would you want to live that long? <laughs> Because I want to be around to see all these cool things that are happening. Right. <laughs> They're definitely coming. That's for sure. Yeah, that's definitely. It's funny because I hear a lot of people that don't want that. It's like, I don't want to be around when this, this, and this happens, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, um, I also gained some weight uh, during the pandemic, um, new dad weight, but also, uh, you know, just eating more, <laughs> being at home, dealing with stress. But then I, um, I, uh, you know, this past year, I've been working really hard to lose a lot of that weight. And so I got to a point where um, I'm, I'm in the best shape I've ever been in my adult life. That's awesome. Working. Yeah, just uh, the lightest I've ever been, the leanest I've ever been, and the, I, in my opinion, the most healthy I've ever been. Well, I hope to report something similar to you within the next two to three months. I, I tell people I was um, fortunate enough not to get COVID-19, but um, at all. But I got COVID thirty eight, which is thirty eight extra pounds, <laughs> right? And and I'm down about twenty eight. But wow. um, but what's what's occurred to me is that um, that the next ten won't be enough. Like mm. that's where I had just settled in, right? Mm -hmm. Like I um, I swim, I jog, um, you know, I, I do um, resistance work, and um, yeah, I just. I see people all around older than me, totally mm -hmm. nimble, you know, and, and healthy, not, and just say, why not me? So mm -hmm. I don't know where I'm going to end up, but um, I think the end result, no matter what the weight is, I'll be able to characterize uh, something very similar to what you said, feeling the best I've ever felt and, and taking care of myself, which oh, is, yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah. That's great that you lost 28 pounds. Congratulations. You know, that's, that's a huge number. Now the key is not to find it again. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Being consistent. I think that's, that's a lot. That's a common mistake, you know, with um, losing weight is a lot of people gain it back 
and mm-hmm. and because they don't develop a lifestyle, they develop right. kind of like a, a tactic or a technique that only works for a few months and then they gain back instead of figuring out what's what you can do for ever, you know, for for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah, so but- um so Steve, just kind of wrap up like if if you had to give some tips for people, let's say um a business owner is listening and they want to just better retain their employees, like what what sort of tips would you give them? Um, boy, is that a Pandora's box? <laughs> um, well, to start with, I would say, and I'm just thinking of the right words to use. Don't trust anything you've ever used. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be good, but don't rely on it. Like, be totally open to an entirely different model to get the answer, how do we retain employees? And the reason I say that is to the point you made earlier, um, there's still a host of people who, um, I use my redneck impression, we ain't never done it that way before, right? (laughs) And, um, (laughs) And think of it this way, we talk about ecological, sustainability we talk about environmental sustainability um you know upgrading all these different things for transportation and for living but when do we upgrade our thoughts Hmm. so like most people and like think of even the word and i don't want to get into uh, to politics but think about the word conservatism right Mm -hmm. what is that doing it's preser- it's preserving the old way. And, and um, there's a whole bunch of new stuff going on in this planet, but we're still thinking like hundreds and in some cases millennials ago, like very archaic, not useful thinking. So the number one thing to uh, retain those employees is to look inside and say, okay, I might have to do like a... Um, an inventory of, hey, I don't need this anymore. I don't need this. Let me experiment with that. Like, be really open. And um, and this is huge. Like, develop the kind of relationship with your employee that you can ask them anything and they feel safe answering. Um, you remember when I broke the Guinness Book of World Records for swinging last fall? No, I did not. Oh, you didn't know about that? No. Yeah. Yeah, 36 hours and five minutes. That's that's wow. for, that's for another conversation. But it was it was in October, Mental Health Awareness Month, swing into mental health. So we did it as a little bit of a gimmick. But wow. um, and why did I now that I said it, I forgot why I said it. <laughs> um uh it, it'll come back to me. But but here's the um here's the general premise. Like people don't typically infuse their mind with new information Mm -hmm. they typically consume entertainment which is a distraction it's fun but it it doesn't it doesn't contribute to the expansion of a person growing and being more aware and more useful in the world Mm -hmm. um we we don't read books much as a society right like I read three, or I don't read anything anymore. I listen to books. Mm-hmm. I like Audible. 
Um, but I, I listen to probably two to three books a month. Mm. And um, what I have found is the people who are most pliable and most useful, and all goes back to your question, what do I do to retain them? Are those that are most relevant. And the way you're relevant is you're always listening to new things. It doesn't mm. mean you have to accept it. You're just taking it in and mm. saying, is this useful? Yep. Okay. This isn't, throw it out. But mm. it's a constant thing so that the brain doesn't stay in the pattern in the rut. Right. Yeah. yeah oh, the thing I tell them is mm. call me because it's a much longer discussion than just, just the answer I just gave you. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. So yeah, Steve, thank you so much for um, everything you shared. This has been really fun. Um, I've enjoyed it and I had no idea where we'd go with it, but in my head, I've been thinking, wow, everything we just talked about is more proof as to why my company needs to really get out there and be successful because all these things are really big issues. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. And so um, where can people find you, Steve? Great question. Um, my email is simple, steve at experimentwithplay.com. Steve at experimentwithplay.com. My name is Steve Ricks, R-I-X, and I'm all over social media, as is PlayLab. And, um, and I never have a problem giving out my cell phone as well, but I always ask people if they actually want to talk, text me first and identify who you are at 808-321-0729. Awesome. Thank you for being on, Steve. It's been my pleasure, Fong. What a great time. Absolutely. I had a great time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>